0: Hello there. Servus. My name is Haysan Wade and you're listening to This Week in Geopolitics, where we take a look at the events of yesterday and detail how they paint the geopolitical reality of today. And what do I have for you today? Well, today we're going to talk about Turkey's new military operation in northern Syria, Iran's underground drone base, and why defending Taiwan would be even worse for America than I previously thought. I had a I had a little revelation while I was out driving, and I will not bring it to you. All that and more, coming up. Alrighty, let's get into the rapid-fire news. So, we have Serbia agreeing to a three-year gas deal with Russia something which which has probably earned them the envy and animosity of the rest of europe who is currently struggling and debating whether or not they're going to go through with the rubles for gas and the upcoming rubles for wheat arrangements that the russians are currently thinking up right now and it's looking increasingly like the europeans are going to fold but the fact that serbia got ahead of them well that's probably just going to not sit very well with them but it's looking like europe is going to basically cave to the new russian agreements and but whether or not they'll go for long-term gas deals like the serbians have will be another question that will be need to be answered uh, especially as gas and oil prices keep rising long-term agreements uh even though right now it's expensive kind of have to weigh your options do you wait for the price to come down and then try to get a long-term deal or do you take what you can get now and if prices continue to rise you're safe uh, you locked in at the prices of today because we consider the prices today is extremely high and they they are to be fair they are but if they're going to keep going higher indefinitely into the future well then This is about as low as you're going to be able to get the deal. And these negotiations take time. And in that time, the price is just going to keep ticking upwards. Uh, Now, Serbia has done what is best for Serbia. They, They were always in Russia's corner. I mean, they've had a really long alliance. But it'll be interesting to see how Europe deals with the gas issue. Again, particularly Germany, because they have pipelines going directly from them to Russia. So all the gas shortages that happen in Germany, those are optional for Germany. Because they have two direct lifelines to Russia. It's optional. So it'll be interesting to see what happens to Europe. And it'll be interesting to see if they can respond before winter. Uh, Because it's looking like they're going to cave now, but they might try to hold out. But if they hold out, they're going to run the risk of not having any gas left in the tank, figuratively and literally, when winter comes around. Because they've depleted their strategic reserves. So they need new gas coming in to refill that, to last them through the winter, especially if they're going to have diminished supplies of Russian natural gas. Although, I don't think that'll be the case if they follow through, because Russia's exports have been rising, Italy in particular has quadrupled their imports of Russian gas. So, we'll see where this goes. But Russia's definitely punching above its weight. And that's, not, that's not anything to scoff at. Russia's not exactly a lightweight. They're quite the heavyweight, and they're still punching above it because they control natural resources and physical goods, not just money and banks. And they've sort of exposed the flaw of modern western finance where you basically just get rid of all your physical goods and your physical economy and you focus on speculation and you end up in situations where a third of the u.s economy is insurance yeah uh which is just mind-boggling and we think we're gonna win a cold war with china whose economy is based on production Uh, 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 uh Ooh, We have some trouble. We have some serious trouble ahead of us. Uh, but at least for America, it's self inflicted at the domestic level. Europe, they'll need some solid foreign policy because they, they don't have gas. They don't have gas. Which is why I've always said that they should have good relations with Russia. There's this dogmatic anti Russia sentiment that goes on in Europe. Um, and it gets stronger the further east you go, uh, and although the Eastern Europeans have a better reason to be hostile to Russia, but Russia exists in Europe, you, you got they live there. You're going to interact with these people in some way, shape, or form for your entire life, right? And so it's most beneficial for your country to have a working relationship with the juggernaut next door. But instead of something reasonable like that being pushed as, you know, sure, we don't like it, but it's necessary for the country, we get, we're going to sanction Russia into the dirt, and we're going to basically act like we own them, and we're going to talk about how they have no legitimate security concerns, and how NATO can expand wherever the hell it wants, and all these things that if the Europeans were behaving rationally and treated Russia as a country that is also a country in Europe, which it is, well, we probably could have avoided the war in Ukraine. Not the war between Ukraine and the rebels, but the broader proxy war that has resulted from Russia invading and NATO basically... Playing, what, a, handing over weapons and money and equipment and all this stuff, playing god, basically. We we could have avoided this if we had rational, reasonable diplomacy before the war. Everyone everyone's talking about peace through diplomacy now, when it's becoming increasingly clear that Ukraine's not going to win this. Everyone jumped on the hype train before. People are now looking to diplomacy after the fact. We could have avoided all this death. We could have avoided all the destruction. And all the the mess that has resulted from the invasion. That is disproportionately affecting everyone who isn't Russia. Ironically. We could have avoided this. We could have avoided the skyrocketing grain prices. We could have avoided the skyrocketing oil prices. We could have avoided all of this. Had we exercised... Diplomacy first before jumping onto the the Cold War bandwagon and Turning Ukraine into a proxy war where we're gonna bleed the Russians dry or We're gonna we're gonna invest in the destruction of our adversaries military and But look at where that got us It's going to be very interesting to see what Europe does moving forward but again their problem is self-inflicted from a foreign policy level so they're going to need to adjust their foreign policy if they want to fix the problems that their bad foreign policy has created america could sit and have zero foreign policy at all and so long as we weren't screwing ourselves on domestic policy like we are now well we wouldn't be suffering wheat shortages or oil shortages or or really any shortage, if, if we hadn't sl- allowed our manufacturing base to just slip away from our grasp, all the problems we face are domestic policy failures, not foreign policy. But alas, alas, that's a, sort of the, the tangle that we've gotten ourselves into with bad decision making on the foreign policy level, and we'll see if corrections are made, and we'll see if accountability is had for the people that got us into this mess. I'm saying probably not, but there's always hope. But back to the rapid-fire news, we have former Egyptian presidential candidate, Abdel Monim, uh, who's been sentenced to 15 years in prison. There, there's also rumors from unnamed sources claiming that Putin is in poor health, and these rumors are running rampant. And unchecked because many people want to believe them. I do not. Uh, I do not. Although I could be wrong, you know, Putin could kick the bucket, and I'll just be sitting here holding a fat L. But I don't trust such claims, especially from unnamed sources. Uh, you see, sources usually are able to name themselves and cite where they get it from. Uh, we're just asked to trust this guy. I don't trust him. <laughs> maybe that's just journalism, but anyway, we have the Ethiopian government undertaking mass arrests in the Amhara region in the country, uh, trying to centralize control over it, and for those unfamiliar with uh, Ethiopia, this is the northwest part of the country, directly on the border with Tigray, which is the farthest north province of Ethiopia, and so they're trying to get control over that region, or centralize control more over that region, so that they can, so they can avoid more situations like what's happening with Tigray right now, and they're really trying to put down a lot of the, uh, what's the name of the province? Uh, Amara, there we go. They're trying to put down a lot of the Amara nationalist movements, which have spawned, and have been there for a little while, but they are obviously afraid that if they leave those alone, those elements alone, well, then Amhara is going to go like, well, if Tigray is leaving, well, why don't we leave too? We don't want to go die in this war. Let's have our own country. Now, if you're Amaran that might be appealing to you, just like independence might be appealing to Tigray. But if you're Ethiopia, well, you're watching your country potentially cripple and crumble away so you're gonna put this down but whether or not this will give them more control or if it'll just create more unrest by inflaming these separatists and potentially nationalist movements we'll have to see uh this year's death toll in Mali in the great african war the second great african war the death toll for this year just this year has already reached 500 people and we're not even halfway through the year Uh, Well, we're we're just about halfway. May 30th. 500 people in six months. Just this year alone. So probably another 500 by the time the year is over. Goodness. We have major floods ravaging Brazil. We have a string of mass shootings in the U.S. And politicians, like I predicted, uh, primarily Democrats, are currently using the atrocities of these shootings as covered to take people's constitutional rights away. Exactly as I said would be the case. And here, uh, go back to my episode, a couple weeks ago, where I talked about the Buffalo shooter. Uh, right now, the, all attention's on the shooting in Texas, and namely on the decision by the police not to go in, even when they heard the, the gunshots. I agree that they made a mistake by not doing what they should have done, which was going in. You know, that's what they're, trained to do so that one's on them that one is uh, much more on them than it would have been had they gone in because ultimately the blame lies with the shooter and the people around him that could have stopped him and potentially the FBI but the blame ultimately lies with the shooter right he could have used any weapon he chose a gun getting rid of guns isn't going to solve the problem. They'll just use a different weapon, or they'll just get the gun illegally, like they, oh, oh, wait a second, they already get the guns illegally. Oh, well. So what's gun control going to do? Because gun, if you're you're a criminal, you break the law by definition, right? So if criminals break the law, then what is gun law going to do? Stop them if they already acquire their weapons through illegal means, well, then what is restricting the legal pathway to getting a weapon going to do to stop the shooters? It's, it's not going to stop them. Gun control is a failed policy. It doesn't work. And all it does is endanger, needlessly, everyone else who isn't a psychopath. Or, that, that's all it does. If you make it harder for regular people to have a gun... Well, you're almost guaranteeing that when a mass shooter pops up somewhere Whoever he's shooting at can't shoot him back and that's the problem. the the shooter feels safe Doing this again. I brought it up Before they don't go to the gun range. They don't shoot at the gun range. They don't shoot at the police station They don't shoot up military bases. They don't shoot up armed guards They they don't go to the Capitol building of this of whatever state they're living in they don't go to DC they don't go to the Pentagon. Where do they go? They go to the mall, the grocery store, a, a concert, a, they, a church, a school, they, places where they feel confident that they're not going to be shot at. We need to start shooting the shooters. That's the solution. We have the perfect law on the books for it. In fact, it's among the highest laws in the land. It's called the Second Amendment. More Second Amendment is the solution to this problem, not less. We've been trying less for decades, and we've gotten uh, worse shootings. The shootings haven't stopped. They're trending downwards in their frequency, but we don't need to have so many people dying. If the the would-be victims were able to defend themselves, that's the solution, and I'll stand by that. So, we're seeing the politicking of these mass shootings, unfortunately, and very shamefully. The U.S. is also imposing new, more sanctions on North Korea after latest missile tests and launches. The World Health Organization, though, and this is an interesting one, it currently seeks now to subvert national sovereignty. Now, this isn't in their words, but this is sort of based off what they want to do. I'm putting it in my words, you know, because this is the way I see it, it's my podcast, but the World Health Organization is seeking to subvert national sovereignty with, and this is what they want to do, a legally binding global pandemic treaty, which would give it, and this the World Health Organization, it would give it the authority and control over the pandemic responses of all the signatory nations and countries. So... That's what they want, and that's why I say in my words that they're subverting national sovereignty because if your country has to surrender its ability to respond to a pandemic to an a supranational entity well then you're subverting national sovereignty and now you have whatever sovereignty the international sovereignty a supranational sovereignty what, what would you even call that? That That's an interesting term, because we have national sovereignty. But what would we call this? Uh, there's, there's a new term that needs to be made. But yeah, it would break up national sovereignty as a concept. Because if your nation is not allowed to make decisions for your nation, and some uh, body of people that is uh, unelected, unappointed, unappointed, uh, no accountability to the people that they're governing over in whatever way, shape, and form, because democracy isn't the only way you can have accountability, but it's the current preferred method around the world. There is no accountability mechanism for the who, aside from countries just deciding to take their money away, like Trump did, and I'd say rightfully so, but the the anti-China lobby thinks that that was just giving more power to China because all they can see is China. Uh, But I desperately hope we are not one of the countries dumb enough to sign on to such a treaty. I really hope that's the case because I'm not trying to surrender my sovereignty or my country's decision-making abilities to these people. Say Say what you will, forget that say what I will about my own government, and the great degree of corruption, incompetence, and criminal activity that they get up to, I would rather my own country's leaders, quote unquote, be responsible for fucking something up, because I can can replace them. We can vote them out, right? We can get rid of these people. They are whether they like it or not, accountable to us, so long as we're willing to make them. The who? Who are they accountable to? Not me. I would prefer that my country be in charge of its own responses to crisis. Because if the expertise and recommendations on how to respond to COVID, which we were given by the WHO, if that is any indication... Of what we can expect for future pandemics then we ought to steer very clear of their leadership because they got it wrong and they got it so terribly wrong and we're still dealing with the the ramifications of that we locked the world's economy down on their recommendation right everyone was forced to wear a mask on their recommendation they they advocated vaccine and passports and IDs. They advocated vaccine mandates. All these unethical and unlawful, in the case of the United States, straight up unconstitutional, all these terrible things that did nothing but hurt people. And they still are not accountable. They, the, there has been no accountability for what they did over these past two years. If that is any indication of what we can expect in the future. We don't need to be signing any treaty with these people. We don't need to be surrendering any power from our country given to these people. We, we do not need to do that whatsoever. That's what I believe. And now, we'll get into the meat of this episode. And We have some juicy topics. I, I guess I'll dedicate next episode, since I keep talking about Taiwan, I'll do an a sort of around the world, or maybe I'll do that, or the episode after, you know who I am, but I'll, I'll get to it, I'll get to it, you know, we all get tired of talking about the same thing, but I gotta get everything off my chest, but I'll do that in the next segment coming up when we get to the meat. Alrighty, let's get into the meat of today's episode, and we're gonna start with Turkey, they're on the move, they're on the move. And we'll get into this uh, following some recent mortar attacks on a Turkish military post that resulted in the death of a Turkish soldier. Turkey now plans a military operation in northern Syria centered on the city of Kobane. This operation was approved by the nation's security council on the 26th earlier this month. And these operations will be aimed at defeating the YPG, which is a Another Kurdish militant group based in Syria. Last week I mentioned the PKK, which is a Kurdish militant group that operates out of northern Iraq, uh, a region which also has Turkish troops there. I wonder what Turkey's up to. It seems to me like they're just at war with the idea of a Kurdistan, as it, as it stands. No pun intended. So Turkey is at war with Kurdistan as a concept, which is. Uh, actually pretty accurate and not only are they fighting the the PKK in Iraq now they're uh, going on the offensive because they were already at war with the YPG as well they're not going on the offensive against the YPG in northern Syria so we have more fighting from this really old conflict Uh, Erdogan the president of Turkey he said, we must finish what has been started. And I brought up two seconds ago that this is a pretty old conflict. The war between Turkey and the Kurdish militant groups has been going on for decades. Uh, in one case, I believe this is against the YPG. At least 40 years. That's a, so like since the 1980s, they've been fighting. Uh, largely inconclusively. clearly, since we were... Still talking about it, but now we see Turkey going more on the offensive now against these groups. Uh, they're putting up, they're increasing the pressure. We, there's more and more military operations. There was one in 2016, one in 2018, one in 2019. Now we have another here in 2022. So they're ramping up their efforts to destroy these groups and probably hopefully with it they're trying to destroy the idea of Kurdistan and and why would they want that well because part of Kurdistan would be in Turkey and Turkey is not looking to give up any of its territory Turkey has a Kurd- large Kurdish minority living within it and it really doesn't need that heartburn it would really appreciate not having something like that. We can see how barbaric people get when it comes to competing claims for land and resources and territory. And we like to think of that it's in the past, but it never went away. It just went to different regions. It was centered on different regions. The Europeans haven't fought, the the, the great powers anyway, haven't fought and a while, but that might not even hold for very long. America and the, and the Native Americans. We won that decisively, but the fighting was savage at many points. And don't even get started on Im- the European imperialism. Especially the rape of Africa. And the treatment of the Southeast Asians. Or the war between China and Japan, which would eventually become the opening shot of the Second World War people get savage over land and resources and territory. So, we can expect savagery, or we should expect savagery to this day. But for some reason, I guess just because we like to believe that we're past that, and we have had a good era, 75 years of peace and prosperity, we want to believe that we're past that, but when you look at places like Afghanistan, when you look at places like whoa, Russia and Ukraine right now, when you look at Israel and how it behaves against Syria, Iraq, and Iran, when you look at places like China and Taiwan, and the, the South China Sea, which is an even broader contest between China, Vietnam, Malaysia, and the Philippines, and the United States for odd reasons, And even the various civil wars in Colombia, Libya, Ethiopia, Yemen, and Syria. People get very savage over land and resources. And that's exactly the type of conflict we have here with Turkey and Kurdistan. It's a war over exactly who, who exactly owns this land. And Turkey says it belongs to them, the Kurds say we want our own country, and it's going to include this place, this place, this place, and this place, and Turkey says no, and so now Turkey is using its military, the second most powerful in NATO, which is probably followed immediately by the French, uh, and superseded by the United States, the second most powerful army in NATO is now being brought to bear in northern Iraq and northern Syria. Against the idea because I really want to stress that they're fighting an idea. There is no Kurdistan There's no Kurdish state although these militant groups are fighting to eventually obtain one and in some cases have achieved a De facto Kurdish state for a couple months or even years on end. They usually just get wiped off by the next military that rolls through be it the Syrian the Iranian the Turkish Or heck, even the Islamic State, which had counter-claims to all of them at the same time. You had the, the Islamic State of Iraq and Syria. They obviously claimed land in Iraq and Syria, which overlapped with the claims of Syria and Iraq themselves, which also overlapped with claims by Kurdistan. So you had this extremely messy conflict, which is sort of why it was hard to follow and keep up with. At the height of the ISIS scare. It it was just such a... You had so many counter and competing claims and counterclaims on the same plot of land. It was just a mess. And you had Turkey get involved. You had Russia get involved. Israel got involved. Arabia got involved. America got involved because we always have to be involved in something. Things get messy. So I'm just waiting for this to get messy too. Because they're fighting for land and they're fighting for resources. Let's be honest about it. They're trying to destroy the idea of Kurdistan because Kurdistan would occupy part of Turkish territory and they don't want that. But in all likeliness, they're probably going to be at least partially successful in pushing the Kurdish militant groups out. I don't know if they'll be able to destroy the idea of Kurdistan. that that might just be a much longer struggle that they're going to have to put up with but if they can destroy these militant groups then that will be a very nice first step so it's highly likely that they'll be successful in either destroying or greatly crippling these groups especially if they're willing to cross into the borders they're willing to cross the borders into northern Syria and northern Iraq to do so but in the event that they are successful that leaves a few questions number one the first that comes to my mind is where will the kurds go if turkey does succeed in destroying or permanently breaking these militant groups like damaging them beyond repair and they just go into terminal decline afterwards like some sort of decisive battle is fought and they just these groups, the YPG or the PKK, they just don't have the strength or the numbers or the equipment to put up meaningful resistance anymore. What happens if Turkey successful in doing this? Where will the Kurds go? It, it, they, again, they don't have their own country. So where do they go is my first question. And the second question I have, in the event that Turkey successful, is... Will the Turkish army leave the captured provinces in northern Iraq and northern Syria? Now, Erdogan has openly stated his plans to return the millions of Syrian refugees living in Turkey back to Syria. But at the very least for them, there's a Syria for them to go back to. So we know where the Syrians are going to go. Where will the Kurds go? Again, there is no Kurdistan. Where will they go? Do they go to Syria? What if Syria doesn't want them? Well, do they go to Iraq? What if Iraq doesn't want them? Do they go to Armenia or Azerbaijan? Lebanon? Where are they going to go? We, we know damn sure Israel's not going to take them. Where do they go? That's going to be a, a very open-ended question that could have some serious consequences in a couple decades. or Maybe... We might see someone take them in, but I don't know who that's going to be. I really can't tell you who. I can tell you that there's probably going to be efforts by Europe and America to bring in as many refugees as we possibly can, you know, because that's on the table now for reasons that I can't explain, but that's probably going to be one of the things that happen, but we're not going to be able to absorb all those people. Namely, because not all of them are going to want to leave so where will they go what will happen to them if they refuse to leave as well will they just be shot killed will atrocities happen uh, will we see the next genocide will we see a genocide I can't I can't tell you I can't tell you what happens with the cart I really can't so that's one of my questions, at the top of the list of questions I have, where will they go? There's no Kurdistan for them to go to. So those are two of my questions uh, as to what happens if Turkey successful. And also, with or without Turkey being successful, just them undertaking this military operation, how would NATO respond to see these what will be open aggression against these kurdish groups whom countries like finland and sweden have aligned themselves with how does nato respond because clearly finland and sweden are in the corner more or less for the kurds which means being against turkey you can't have those two you can't have finland and sweden in the same alliance with turkey if they're going to be allying and partnering with Turkey's enemies so how does NATO respond like even with that out of the not even a factor because they're not Finland and Sweden aren't NATO members yet how does NATO in its current form respond do they ignore it do they tell Turkey to stop do they aid Turkey Will we see cries for support the Kurds? Probably. Or do they do something more radical? Will they use this military operation as a convenient excuse to kick Turkey out of the alliance? And also not so subtly send a message to the other opponents of Finnish and Swedish NATO membership? Well, is that what they do? Who knows? I, I can tell you certain things that I expect to happen, like support for the Kurds and decrying the violence, but I can't tell you beyond that because it's it's really convoluted. There's there's not like a like a a consistent policy on this that I can sort of go off of, or or more importantly, consistent actions that I can go off of that I can say definitively, this is the greatest likelihood that this is gonna happen. Like, I, I can't tell you. There's there's a whole lot of irrationality on those points, and you add in the unknown elements, which is Finland and Sweden joining NATO, but they're also backing up enemies of Turkey, who is already a NATO member. Which means that if, when the vote comes around, if they're still supporting the Kurdish groups, Turkey's never going to accept Finland and Sweden in. Is that the reason they're at war right now? So that Turkey can have and mobilize public sentiment to guarantee, uh, when I say Turkey, so that Erdogan specifically can mobilize the public support he needs to say no to the expansion of NATO using the finland using finnish and swedish support of kurdish groups as his linchpin for doing is this a political move that's another question then there's how does russia respond now russia may be at war right now but they have troops to spare their army is very large and they've deliberately used a roughly equal force in their invasion of Ukraine, and they're currently stomping out the Ukrainian army as we speak. The war will probably be decided in the coming months, maybe a month or two, maybe longer. It really just depends on how the Russians feel about it and how long the Ukrainians are able to resist. But... Russia has troops available for other things. Let's not pretend that they don't. They have troops still stationed in the Caucasus after the nagorno karabakh War. There, there's troops there. There's military infrastructure there. They still have troops in Georgia, in Abkhazia and South Ossetia. They have total dominance of the Black Sea now. So how would Russia respond to this military conflict? Will they respond at all? Maybe not. Maybe not. Or maybe they will, because Syria is their ally. But then again, Turkey already has troops in northern Syria. They've already done this before. Does Russia tell them, beat it, and get out? Or does Russia stay quiet, because they're at war, and they don't want Turkey to make the war in Ukraine, which they're really already about to win. Do they stay quiet, as to not make yet another enemy which would really just threaten Russia's entire western frontier. Like they they can deal with the mountainous, sparsely populated and heavily forested terrain of Finland and their border with Norway. They can handle that. They can handle the Baltic trio. They they can do that. They have Belarus right there. It wouldn't take much. They can they're already handling Ukraine right now, and once they're done, that will greatly simplify and Greatly shore up their southwest, especially their Black Sea coast, which dominate uh, greatly, especially with the capture of Odessa. But tur- adding Turkey to that mix is too much. It's a bit too much. It's too many directions. Too many enemies from too many directions, and plus Turkey has a competent military and a competent military industry. It would not be like uh, where Germany and Poland and the United States were arguing with each other over who was going to give Ukraine two outdated jet fighters. It would be Turkey's now supplying your enemy with drones. Uh, more drones. And making bank off of it. So, will they stay quiet? Or do they have the capacity to take on another enemy? Because... NATO is weaker than it seems. Will they take that gamble? Will Turkey take the gamble? That's a question that I have. How does Iran respond? I've been hyping up the alliance, the ever-increasing alliance between Iran, Iraq, and Syria. With Iran and Syria being sort of the strongest alliance in the Persia Pact, which is what I like to call it. So if Turkey starts mucking around in northern Syria, how does Iran respond to that? because Turkey would be messing with the sovereignty of an Iranian ally and a vital land corridor from Iran to Lebanon, who Iran has also been able to win over with their supply of oil and gas. So, does Turkey intervening in northern Syria create bad blood between them and Iran, where they were relatively neutral before? How does Iran respond? Do they send in their militias to back up the Syrians? Or does how does Syria respond? Because they're the ones about to have their borders violated. Again, for the umpteenth time this decade. How does Syria respond? Are they able to respond? I know they're still cleaning up the the Civil War, but they're not quite done. So do they let it happen and just... allow another faction in their civil war to sort of be crushed by outside power and deal with the ramifications of that later because that's something they could do but again going back to the first question what will, will will those troops leave will those troops leave uh actually no that's my second question my first question was where the kurds go But going back to my second question, will the Turkish army leave? If Syria allows them to destroy the Kurds, does the Turkish army leave? Because if they don't, well, congratulations, Syria, you've surrendered part of your country. Does Syria fight back? Syria is in such a rough spot, I do not envy the decisions that have to be made. I do not envy the people who have to make them in Syria. But these are some pretty interesting and pretty consequential questions that at some point are going to have to be answered, or they'll be answered for us by reality. It'll be very, very interesting. And also, I should add, as well as sort of my final question is this action, this military operation that Turkey's undergoing? Is this action being taken now partly in anticipation that Turkey will have to fend for itself in the near future? I talked about Sweden and Finland joining NATO and how Erdogan may have done this specifically to galvanize public support for him saying no to those two joining NATO by being in a more active state of war with the Kurdish militant groups. That would make uh, potential joinees of NATO who support those militant groups public enemy number one to the Turkish people. And he can use that as sort of the political backing from the ground up to say no to those that membership like he wanted to. So I discussed that as a possibility for a political move domestically. But what if this is more than just a domestic political move what if turkey is anticipating that in the near future it's going to have to fend for itself like in the event that it gets kicked out of nato so that finland and sweden can join turkey's turkey's gonna need a competent military and why not use the cover of being in nato because being in nato gives you some great cover look at the french interventions in africa And the Turkish interventions in northern Syria before, look at the NATO interventions in Libya and Yemen, or the the United States intervening literally everywhere. Being in NATO gives you great uh, political cover at the foreign policy level. So are they using that cover now to set themselves up in a more advantageous position for what they might view as being the inevitable going it alone that they might have to do? Who knows? It's a possibility, but who knows? I suppose we'll, well, we'll find out, you know, all we have to do is watch long enough and we'll get our answer, but that's Turkey, and now we're going to talk about Iran, because Iran has an, a shiny new underground drone base. Last week, Iran showcased a large subterranean military base which housed many Iranian military drones. The, these drones range from combat to reconnaissance, you name it. They had various sorts of drones, all hidden away in this underground base. Uh, and I guess since Iran makes its own military equipment as well, that would also mean that uh, they've also very subtly showcased their ability to make. All of these drones as well so not only do they have a lot of drones but they have the ability to make them so that's that's what the hidden showcase you gotta, you gotta have a little bit of context for that one but given all the drones that they have and all the different purposes they've given to some of these drones to cover all the essentials and the bases I ask now whom, I wonder, will these weapons of war be unleashed upon? Now, at the top of my list of guesses, I'm guessing Israel, probably. Or maybe Turkey. And all, all depending on the response on the Turkish military intervention in northern Syria. Well, not quite an intervention, but more of a military operation in northern Syria. Translation, they're going to invade. But, depending on how iran responds to that they might use some of these reconnaissance drones and share intelligence with the syrian army and the affiliated militias within syria the iranian and syrian militias that might respond to this maybe they i don't imagine they'll use the combat drones cuz that would be an act of an overt act of war at the very least through the militias that iran has in syria you have you're one step removed uh, not a very big step removed, but you're removed enough to say that hey that wasn't us uh, Our army is in Iran that would, that's a militia. We we can't we can't control the militia. That's uh, Unreasonable even though we control the militia so We could see them use these reconnaissance drones to aid Syria and make sure or potentially even if they don't engage directly in shooting We could see those drones be used for reconnaissance to make sure that Syria is not being uh actually I should say to make sure that the Turkish troops are going where they say that they're going and not occupying other pieces of land that have nothing to do with the Kurdish. So there are a good number of things they can do with these drones, not even the combat ones, just just the reconnaissance. There's having them opens up a whole field and range of things and possibilities that may be taken advantage of although again i'm suspecting that most of these are going to be deployed against israel and it looks like israel comes one step closer to destroying itself with its own foreign policy because now iran has all these drones they have the ability to make all these drones and they have a military industry set up to continue producing them if they've built a whole underground base to house them they're clearly building more So, it seems that Iranian industry is tipping the scales in Iran's favor. And having China as a buyer for Iranian oil, and again, I predicted this would happen, China has almost single-handedly resurrected the Iranian oil industry. That means that the massive army and military that Iran was fielding before, when they were under sanction. Now they can expand. Now they can do qualitative improvements to their forces, which is what they're doing right now. So with Iranian industry bolstered by the Chinese money, because China's buying their oil, how does this tip the scales? Well, I I say how. it, It already has tipped the scales in Iran's favor, and it continues to do so. But at what point does Iran have a decisive enough advantage? Because Israel is losing its advantage by the second. Courtesy of the improvements in the quality of Iran's military. Courtesy of the military experience that their army gains from being involved in Syria. And courtesy of the the weapons sales that they get from all these conflicts, where Israel is using up its weapons, fighting in Syria and in Lebanon and intervening in all these places. Iran is making money from selling the weapons. Sure, Iranian weapons are being used too, but it's not at the expense of the Iranian state. It's at the expense of the country that bought the weapon, not Iran. Iran is making money. How... Is this tipping the scales? I say it's tipping the scales in Iran's favor. And there may come a point where it tips decisively in their favor to the point where Israel won't be able to fight Iran in a 1v1, let alone if Iran were to mobilize its allies. I mean, look at all those ballistic missiles that Iran is able to produce and ship to the Houthis in Yemen. Iran's gotten really good at using ballistic missiles lately and they're improving slightly slowly but surely they're improving the accuracy of these missiles as well instead of having a barrage where you like two or three rockets actually hit the target you could probably get up to like six or ten and depending on where you're aiming it at and the ranges are also increasing as well so as iran increases the quality And the capacity of its military. Again, they have to be manufacturing more of these drones if they felt it necessary to build a whole underground base to house them. What does that say about the air war? And air supremacy? That, That bodes incredibly well in Iran's favor. Iranian industry is turning the tide here. And that's w- one of the bigger takeaways that I get from this base, this military base that they have underground for their drones. They're making these drones. Their industry is winning them the Cold War that they're in. Oh, I say Cold War. It's more of an undeclared state of war that exists between them and Israel. But Iranian industry is winning the war for them. Like, they're making these drones. They're going to make more of these drones... And as their oil industry continues its resurrection, thanks to Chinese uh, demand, we can only expect the Iranian economy and the Iranian arms industry to grow. And how does that measure up to Israel, who's, who can't go two weeks without something happening between them and Palestine, even though they have a ceasefire? They can't go more than a week without some new incident inflaming the tensions. And eventually, there's going to be another war. Let's just all be honest with ourselves. Eventually, Israel and Palestine are going to fight each other again. And what happens then? What happens then? Does someone intervene? Because Israel continues bullying its neighbors. And at some point, given the rise of Iran, given the rise of Turkey... At some point, someone's going to start shooting back at Israel, which is why I believe they're on a course for self-destruction. Heck, even Egypt is getting their military together, uh, although I believe that's for much different reasons, but it's going to be there and it can be used for different things than it's intended for. I'm pretty sure they're gearing up for conflict uh, in and around Sudan with Ethiopia over the water, and there's a water war, but they're building up all these the this supply of arms and weapons, they could very easily just turn their guns on their even closer neighbor. Israel's way closer to Egypt than our Ethiopia is, which means it's easier to reach. Israel's being surrounded by powers that are growing militarily in their strength. And one of them increasingly desperate in their attempt to survive as a country. The other uh, growing in their animosity towards Israel for constantly fucking with them and poking with them. So, and then there's Turkey who wants dominance of the East Mediterranean and that's just going to conflict with Israel by its nature. So, at the very least, the Turks don't hate Israel, but Turkey threw its weight in with the Palestinians the last time. Oh, it was just words last time. What if it's more than just words next time? Israel is on a path for self-destruction. They can, they can course correct. They still can course correct. If, a, if there anything is to be learned from this region, it's that changes can be made. No one would have suspected that Arabia, of all countries, would be pursuing not just détente, but uh. A fundamental reworking of their position in the Middle East, geostrategically. Because, like, they were openly hostile with Iran not that long ago. Now they're allowing Iranian diplomats to actually set foot on Arabian soil for the Organization of Islamic Cooperation, which Iranian diplomats weren't allowed to do. Because they weren't allowed to even set foot in Arabia. The detente has gotten all the way to the point where they're allowed to enter into Arabia. That's not too far away from allowing uh, Iranians to take the pilgrimage to the holy cities. And it's at that point that we'll know that we've reached a really big milestone. So, Arabia has actually shown us and demonstrated... That big changes in foreign policy can be made. And if you're willing to put in the time and effort into making them successful, they can be successful. They were enemies with Iran just five years ago. Now, they're increasingly neutral. And eventually, who knows, they might even become friends or friendly or just cordial the changes can be made, and Israel has every bit as much capability to make these changes as Arabia does, but will they? That's the question, and well, I don't think they will, but they can, so that's the important thing to stress, but I don't think they will. They're on a path for self-destruction, and it doesn't look like they want to step off that road, at least not yet, but Hopefully, by the time they do, it won't be too late for them. Uh, But that is Israel. Now we're going to talk about Taiwan. And specifically, why a war for Taiwan would be even worse than I originally thought. And that that probably just says a whole bunch, since I am not one of the people who think that this is going to go particularly well for the United States. Or for Taiwan, for that matter. So... Uh, I'll I'll just get into it, alright, because yeah, it's quite interesting. And uh, I'll, I'll, when I thought about it, when I came to the conclusion, the the sort of semi new conclusion about my thoughts on war with China over Taiwan, I was upset that I didn't think about it before. I was upset because we we say the, the the word war 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 with. Will there be war with China? Will China invade Taiwan? What happens if there's a war over Taiwan? How does the U.S respond? Everywhere you look on this issue, people casually throwing around the word war, war. Will the U.S. going to war with China? or China going to war with Taiwan? or war between you know, I'm reiterating and repeating myself now, but you get the point. Every time you talk or listen to someone else talk about this topic, it war. It's war. War between China and Taiwan. War between the U.S. and China over Taiwan. Will the U.S. go to war to defend its allies? Will America's allies come along for the ride and going to war with China? We say the word war a lot. But as you know, I've been... I've been crying out into the void these past few episodes on how defending Taiwan is a disaster waiting to happen. I still believe that. Uh, but in this specific string of uh, rants, if I'm being honest with myself, rants that I've done over the past few episodes, I've been addressing more of the economic rationales for getting us involved in the conflict, where before it was more of the the geostrategic, uh, geopolitical aspect of, well, we have to defend it, we have to defend Taiwan, otherwise China's gonna, they're gonna invade this country, this country, this country, and that's a threat to U.S. security. I've thoroughly countered that in my belief that Taiwan falling means virtually nothing for the United States. Nothing's gonna change over here. Nothing we can't compensate for. It's it's not like we're just gonna be in greater danger when Taiwan falls than we were already. And the same goes for Australia. They... Those folks are even more panicked about the idea than we are, but to be fair, they are closer to China than we are, but they're not as close as they like to pretend that they are. It's sort of the opposite of uh, the English outlook on Europe, where the English uh, like to pretend that they're a million miles away from Europe, and they're so very incredibly different from Europe, and they're, 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 just, they're not European at all. Uh, that's how they like to view themselves. Or at least half of them, anyway. Uh, <laughs> Brexit, but the Australians have sort of an inverse version of that, where even though they are well over a thousand miles from the Chinese mainland, probably closer to two thousand, from looking at this map, uh, they are responding to China as though it was a country they had a land border with that was threatening to invade them with tanks, planes, and uh, I almost said ships and artillery. We uh, and they—they they have not very much reason to fear such a thing, unless China were to literally invade Malaysia, the Philippines, and Indonesia. And at that point, if you're not out there fighting them on those islands, then you've asked—you've asked for the problem. But Australia has a whole buffer. A massive buffer in the form of indonesia all you have to do is keep indonesia malaysia and maybe the philippines but indonesia malaysia and papua new guinea neutral maybe brunei as well but that's all you have to do maybe even you make them friends or ally i wouldn't go as far as say allies because then you make you threaten china but you have a neutral buffer between you and china and you're good china has to sail through their waters to get to australia so australia's fears i've Sort of counter to with my points, and as far as the United States is concerned, we are even farther away from China than the Australians are. Like, what China takes Taiwan, and all these folks are afraid that China's just gonna leapfrog their way over to the United States. They take Taiwan, and then what they go another couple hundred miles at least a solid seven to eight hundred miles, I'm I'm eyeballing it right now, I'm looking at this map of the world I have up in my room, but that's at least another seven to eight hundred miles from the east coast of Taiwan, just to get to Guam, and, and then what, well, you're gonna go to Midway and Hawaii, congratulations, even if you get to Hawaii, you're talking another couple thousand miles to get to the U.S. mainland. You take Midway, you're talking at least a thousand miles to get to the mainland Alaska. Like, the distances involved are mind-boggling. Like, can we even really perceive a thousand miles and how big of a distance that is? And how much of a strain logistically that would be? China's not going to just magically get here because they took Taiwan. That's such a leap in logic that it, it disturbs my mind hearing it peddled so much as though it was just a logical argument to make when it's really not. Just look at a map. But I've been addressing the geostrategic side for most of my earlier rants on on why we shouldn't be defending Taiwan. But in the more recent string, I've been talking about the economics, the microchips and semiconductors that are based in Taiwan, that people are afraid that if China takes that, then they'll just... They'll cut us off from those chips, and then our economy will be in freefall. Well, I, I addressed that if China wanted our economy to be in freefall, they could embargo literally anything else. <laughs> that we get all of our prescription drugs from China. We All of our prescription drugs, all the masks that people are still wearing, even though we're not in a pandemic anymore, and even though they weren't effective at stopping COVID anyway. But all those masks, all the rubber gloves that we use in our hospitals... All the, those big machines you see in the beds in the hospitals. All that is made in China, right? All that's made in China. Uh, contact lenses. My glasses. China. Uh, pens, pencils, office supplies. All this is made in China. S- parts for automobiles. Uh, there's just so much. There is so much stuff. The, the light bulbs in your house or your office the the your room fan that you are probably overusing right now because it's hot outside your phone charger your bluetooth speaker the forks and spoons you eat with the cups the bowls and plates you eat off of even the plastic ones made in china let alone the metal ones which are also made in china it, straight all the way up to the clothes on your back and the shoes on your feet they're all made in china if china wanted to kill our economy they would just embargo selectively any one of those line items and a mil- or a million other things that I, I have not even named yet uh, because I, I there's just so much stuff. We import everything in China. They do not need to take Taiwan first to destroy our economy with an embargo. They don't need Taiwan's chips to kill our economy. They could do it before. In fact, they would do it before if destroying our economy was the goal, because then they could guarantee the United States wasn't going to intervene to defend Taiwan. We'd be too weak. Economic warfare takes time. You would do it before. Let us sit in our own decadence of lacking of manufacturing base, and watch American, watch our economy go into freefall, and and then you invade Taiwan the United States is going to be preoccupied with problems at home that would make more sense infinitely more sense Then let's take Taiwan, risk the US getting involved at as close to full strength as it's going to be this time of year and hope and pray that the, we kill their economy later on oh and by the way once we take Taiwan we're, we're going to embargo chips to the United States that doesn't make any sense that doesn't make any sense but I, I i've addressed why i thought why i believe it does not make sense namely because when china invades taiwan it's not just going to be an amphibious assault they're going to use their navy and they're going to blockade the island the chips physically will not be able to get off the island which means you'll have an embargo anyway so but and that led me down the the path to my you know my my revelation that I talked about because l- looking at it from that economic perspective uh, allowed me to explore a little bit. Uh, again, this going at against the idea we have to defend Taiwan to protect America's microchip supply lines. Uh, I say we need domestic production. If we're so concerned about our supply line of microchips then we should be going all in on domestic production. That's America first. That creates jobs here that removes that removes vulnerabilities, or removes dependencies on other countries, and makes us, again, less vulnerable to supply shocks like other countries going to war over things and reasons that have nothing to do with us. Why would we allow ourselves to be vulnerable when we don't need to be it's not like chips are a natural resource that we just we don't have it or, or like a, a mineral that we just do not have in this country we can make chips we have rare earth just we have it, plenty of it and we have the capital the engineers we we have the infrastructure we have everything we need we have the manpower the workforce we have a whole labor shortage people who work in these places these fabricator plants are going to get paid top dollar. I'm pretty sure we'll be able to find some people to work there. We have everything we need for domestic production of chips. Why wouldn't we go all in? But instead of that, we have people saying we have to defend Taiwan for these chips. But going against that idea of doing that from the economic perspective uh, got my mind racing and thinking about it more and more. Uh, to the point where it was, the argument was living rent-free in my head while I was out driving, it, it got stuck in my mind. And it, it again, because it, it keeps getting brought up, and I keep refuting it in my own mind while I'm listening to people bring it up. But I thought about it more and more, and the more I thought about it, the more it didn't make sense. And I came to some shocking revelations before the Great revelation. First and foremost, the fear that China is going to cut us off from chips after taking Taiwan. I've gone over that they do not need to take Taiwan first to cut us off from anything to kill our economy. They would do it before they invaded. It would make more sense to do it before they invaded, and they don't need specifically chips to do so. They they manufacture everything. Cut off cut us off from light bulbs and see what happens. <laughs> I'm laughing, but it's it's pretty dire how much we import from them. They, they cut us off from light bulbs, and we'll go back to the dark ages. We'll go back to whale oil. That, that, oh my goodness, it's just it's just bad. That's what it is. It's just bad how dependent we are, and that dependency will come back into play. It's part of the, the great revelation. But they don't need to take Taiwan first, then cut us off from chips to kill our economy. They can do it before. But then I realized. China's never embargoed us before. And I looked it up to confirm that my revelation was actually real and not just me speculating. No, they they have never embargoed us before. So why then would we be afraid that they're going to cut us off? They have never embargoed us before, and that, that, that just smacked me across the face when I realized that, and sort of, but if they'd never embargoed us before, why would we be concerned about them randomly choosing to embargo us after taking Taiwan and cutting us off from microchips when they have, that would require them to do something that they've never done before. We, we, we already know why they would invade Taiwan. They're still at war with Taiwan. It's a part of their civil war, right? So the fact that they're at war, them fighting a war against Taiwan, well, they're still at war. They never ended. They, there was never a peace. So that much makes sense for them to do. But why would they embargo us when they've never done that before? Why would we be afraid of them doing that when they've never done that before? And that's the bigger question. They've never done it. And I was just so shocked when I realized that. They've never done this, so why are we talking about this? Why are we obsessing over this? like It's just a given that they're going to do it after they take Taiwan, when it's not. They've never embargoed us before. So why would they do it now, with Taiwan's microchips after they take Taiwan? It, it doesn't make sense. But on that note, given that they've never embargoed us before their actions prove that they don't want to embargo us. If they had the choice between embargoing us and not embargoing us, China has consistently proven over these past multiple decades that they would rather not embargo us to the point where they've never done it at all. They have just not done it. But then it got me thinking, if we intervene on Taiwan, well, That would give them a a very good reason to cut us off from these chips. I mean, they're going to put Taiwan under a blockade anyway. So whether we intervene or not, the the chips are going to be cut off. So intervene. If we don't intervene, they'll continue to do business with us as usual. And when they're done with Taiwan, they'll probably just sell us the chips, whatever's left over. And they'll probably use their Chinese magic to build, like, 8 million new fabricator plants <laughs> and just start shitting out chips at a, a rate that boggles the mind. But that's the power of a manufacturing base. That's the power of being an industrial powerhouse. Uh, so that's probably what's going to happen after Taiwan. A massive expansion of these chips in a way that Taiwan just physically could would not be able to do. Like, that... Uh, So, at the very least, we have that as a a light at the end of the tunnel, because once China takes Taiwan, what's left of China's, not China's, well, it will be China's, but what's left of Taiwan's chip manufacturing can be expanded into the Chinese mainland, probably in the Pearl River Delta, where they have Shenzhen and Hong Kong. We're probably going to see a ridiculous expansion of chip production, driving prices down to levels we probably couldn't even fathom right now with the limited ability of taiwan to even produce these chips china's gonna throw money and manpower at this and it's gonna make them incredibly rich and they're going to sell those chips to the united states and they're going to be very willing to do that especially if we don't intervene in taiwan when they inevitably go to war well they're already at war but when they inevitably invade is what i should say if we intervene on Taiwan, we'll give the Chinese a reason to do that thing that they've never done before, which is embargo us. So if we stay out, they'll sell us what's left, and we'll have privileged access to the expansion of chip production in China uh, with Taiwanese engineers at the helm of it. So they'll have mass; they'll be producing more chips, and they'll be the highest quality chips on the planet. Uh, although i'm pretty sure some of the taiwanese engineers will probably flee to other countries and you'll have some real competition on the international market but no one's going to be producing chips like china's going to be producing chips in the coming decades right but they'll sell that to us if we stay out they'll have a reason to embargo us if we intervene so intervening would create the problem that intervention is supposed to solve, and that goes back to my constant criticism of interventionism as a, as an idea, as a thing that just this boo-boo garbage trash belief, that creates the problems that it's supposed to be solving. Like if we stay out of Taiwan, China has no reason to embargo us. They've never embargoed us before. If we intervene in Taiwan, we've given China a reason to embargo us. We've Given them the rationale to do that thing they've never done before and we will have created the problem a Chinese embargo of Taiwanese chips to the United States That fear that we had that they were going to do that. We will have created that problem through our own policy That's the circular logic of interventionism, but of course Very few will point that out and I am luckily one of the few most others will just use that as an excuse. Well, we just have to intervene harder, you know. Uh, well, if we don't intervene, what does that say about our morals? And, you know, they're just immediate nonsensical arguments that don't have anything to do with the topic at hand. But intervening there will create the problem. But if we don't, well, then China's just going to keep doing business with us as usual. So there's that. But going back to the fact that Taiwan's going to be put under blockade with or without our intervention, the chips are going to get cut off for a brief period of time, especially before China is able to step in and revamp the production and start expanding, which is another thing that I've just realized that they're going to do uh, talking to you on this podcast. So the revelation continues thinking about this issue. So maybe I might still have a a thing or two to say in the next episode, but uh, I'll make it brief and not a whole segment. But that's what China's going to do. But if we intervene... uh, we're not going to stop the chip shortage. It's going to happen with or without our intervention. We may as well not intervene. All we're going to do uh, is add Americans to the casualty lists. Because the only way we could break that blockade is by putting our Navy well within the range of Chinese aircraft, ballistic missiles, anti-ship missiles, and air defense missiles for our carrier-based airplanes. And we'd have to bring our entire navy to bear but we're not going to be able to do that because we have our navy spread out across the entire world because we like to be world policing or at least that's what our government likes to do the chinese navy is bigger than ours and is concentrated in this area in the waters around china meaning they will have naval supremacy i i ran the numbers in one of my episodes back uh a couple months ago well, I talked about it, and the naval arms race, I think that's what it was, Augustine the naval arms race, but in that episode, I laid out China, the Chinese Navy is bigger than our total Navy, but in a war with China, we can expect the Pacific Fleet to show up, not the entire U.S. Navy. The Pacific Fleet is not the entire U.S. Navy, Uh, all together, it's about a little bit over half of the U.S. Navy meaning that it's going to be outnumbered by almost two to one by the chinese navy which is concentrated in what will be the the field of battle you know the the zone of conflict so to speak so it's going to be outnumbered and the only way you're going to break the blockade would be to get close enough to do so but getting close enough to do so would risk the destruction of the fleet due to all those missiles and the aircraft that i mentioned You'd have to keep the fleet back, to keep it alive, to fight. But if you do that, you can't break the blockade on Taiwan. And if you don't break the blockade, the chips can't get out. So with or without American intervention, we're going to, be, in effect, be under embargo-like conditions. Right? Because the chips just aren't going to be able to leave Taiwan until the war is over. So all we would achieve by intervening is... Putting American lives at risk, we'd risk the destruction of the Pacific Fleet, and we'd just add Americans to the casualty lists. And that is not America first. We'd be better off staying out. But the fear persists, though, that if China took Taiwan, they would cut us off from chips, even though the onset of war would do that, because they put Taiwan under blockade. And again, if China wanted to cripple our economy, they could embargo literally anything else, and they could do it before the war, such as prescription drugs. And again, they wouldn't do it after taking Taiwan, they'd do it before. Economic warfare takes time to come into effect. Intervening to defend Taiwan would create the problem that is being used as the excuse to get us involved in this mess. Goodness, I can't stand interventionism. But, again, the onset of war between China and Taiwan would result in embargo-like conditions for us with regards to the microchips that come from Taiwan. And then, here's the big revelation, because it fucking hit me, it fucking hit me, and this is the revelation. War equals embargo. We've been taught, again, back to the beginning of this segment, everyone discusses war between the U.S. and China, over Taiwan war over this the the new cold war uh, war in the South China Sea war this war that but then it, it hit me like like a like not even like a truck it hit me like a, a train a, a train that stretched out for a mile long it hit me like a a, a train a high speed bullet train at that war equals embargo and then I I was upset that I didn't think about it. I was upset that I didn't realize this until now, all these these months later. How long have I been talking about this being a disaster for us? And it didn't even hit me that war equals embargo. When China and Taiwan go to war, that will create a de facto chip embargo because the chips physically won't be able to get out from Taiwan to the United States. But take that concept and apply it As to trade between China and the United States. Because what would happen if the United States went to war with China to defend Taiwan? What if we went to war with China? That would immediately cut us off from all of our imports from China. All of them. Overnight. Like that. Forget a hypothetical chip embargo that China could... Maybe, possibly, potentially, theoretically hit us with in the future after taking Taiwan? Forget that. Forget a selective embargo of critical goods like prescription medication or office supplies or light bulbs. Forget that. Forget a selective embargo of the clothes on your back. Forget all of that. If we go to war with China we would have effectively embargoed ourselves from everything we import from china as a result of our own policy we would lose access to everything and I, I it just oh, it hit me like a train we lose access to everything we import from china and we buy everything from china everything we get is from china and overnight all that would would it would disappear We'd have everything we bought that we had stockpiled, but how long is that going to last? <clears throat> A couple months? Oh, oh, that's nice. Well, the price for those goods are going to skyrocket because they're not being resupplied. So, uh, war with it, it, this would kill our economy. It would kill our economy almost overnight. War with China would be an act of economic suicide. Let me repeat that. War with China would be an act of economic suicide. Now, no one who lives in the United States would, in their right mind, call committing economic suicide an America First policy. No, no one in their right mind would say that. But if the result of another policy was... If the, if the result of another policy was economic suicide, then said policy would by extension not be an America first policy. Therefore, the United States going to war with China, a war with China to defend Taiwan, is not an America first policy. It's Taiwan first and it's China last, but it's not America first. War with China would be an act of economic suicide because war equals embargo. How's, how's that for a, a great revelation? So, goodness. hopefully oh, goodness. I'm, I sound like Porky Pig now, but you can see why I was partially upset with myself for not putting that together earlier any earlier than i just did but now you can see why i'm even more opposed to this war we would kill ourselves we'd hang ourselves we would hang ourselves on this net of foreign entanglements that we refuse to give up and i'm not trying to do that Uh, not only am i not trying to die on taiwan hill or ukraine hill for that matter but I'm not trying to commit economic suicide. I like being able to buy things in my store. It, it was bad enough when we ran out of toilet paper in the beginning of the COVID lockdowns. It, oh my goodness, they make all our toilet paper too. Oh my goodness, this is this is a disaster. This is a disaster. Just just waiting to happen. Oh, I, 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 hope, I hope Biden doesn't do it. I hope he reneges. I hope he sits there and denounces China. I hope... I can hope that's all I can do. I I don't know what these people are going to do. God damn you, strategic ambiguity. I have no clue what my country's going to do when when this happens. But I know if we commit ourselves to defending Taiwan, we're going to commit economic suicide. Oh, so bad. So bad. But at the very least, I've told you about it. So... I guess now, it it, that makes it a little bit better, that someone else knows. My goodness, it's gonna be such. Oh Oh my goodness, it's just so bad. Uh, I I don't even know what to say. I guess I'll end it there. I'll end it there. Hopefully, uh, smarter people prevail. But uh, Lord knows that's not the Biden administration. Hopefully a miracle happens is more like it, and we have some competence uh, a fit of competence that's what we need. Like you know, people have a fit of rage, we we need a, a fit of competence out of the out of the administration. We we need them to get their to get their 19th century diplomat on. You know, you know, bring out all their their fine vocabulary and their big words and their their grand st- geostrategic plans and sidestep a war by some technicality based in the the law. They're all lawyers, so they they should be able to do it, you know, but, um, that's what we have to hope and pray for now. Goodness. This is a mess, but I'll leave it there. And that's all I have for you today. Um, I do hope you've enjoyed today's broadcast on my geopolitical podcast. We have a disaster waiting to happen, But, uh, hey, at the very least, after that, China's going to expand chip production, you you know. Uh, The the world is changing, folks. The world is changing very quickly. Uh, In some ways good, some ways radically dangerous. But at the very least, we will have fun watching it together. Now, I've been your host, Haishan Wade, in before the massive chip shortage that might kill everything and my light bulbs. Uh... And you've been listening to This Week in Geopolitics. You've been listening to This Week in Geopolitics. I don't know what I said before that. But, uh, yeah. See you again next Monday. Servus.